I think it's safe to say that pretty well everything we do is an effort to be happy. It's what all beings want to be happy. Even if we think about this evening sitting in meditation and maybe at some stage you want to move and would rather go for a walk or do something else and but you stay there and you sit still and ultimately it's because you have confidence that there's a point to this practice that the exercise of disciplining attention disciplining the body in this way is going to lead to increased happiness and or you think about getting up in the morning earlier than perhaps you would really like to essentially behind that is well want to start the day doing some agility exercises and interested in being happy so if this is the primary motivation for so much of our effort why is it that after all these years and all this effort that we're still so unhappy what's going on it's not because of a lack of food there are tragically still some people in the world who don't have enough food but we certainly are not short of food clothing, shelter, medicine, all of these things are abundant. What is it? What's, what is getting in the way of our realizing this happiness that we're so interested in? Well, the Buddha's solution to this was to do with the views that we operate out of. And this is something that I think is really worth looking very closely at. The views that we hold. The Dhammapada verse 319 which says, Beings who hold right views, who see false as false and true as true, have a happy future or literally go to a happy destination. Those who see that which is false as false, those who see that which is true as true, beings who hold right views have a happy future. The Buddha laid a lot of emphasis on the views that we hold and how we hold them. Because even the Buddha's teachings on what he called right view, like we've just been chanting this evening in the Tamachaka Pawatana Sutta, the Eightfold Path, Sammaditi, right from the set go, the 
first fact of the Eightfold Path is right view, Sammaditi, right view. So he laid a lot of score by getting the views right. And if we are interested in the happiness of the Buddha, then also we need to be interested in the views we hold and how we hold them. Even the Buddha's view we can spoil if you, if you hold the Buddha's view like a truncheon and go around whacking people with people who don't agree with your view. That's, even the Buddha's view can be a cause for suffering. So it's essential that we understand the preeminence of this matter in the Buddha's teachings. If we have confidence in the Buddha, have faith in the Buddha's teachings, then we really do need to be looking at the views that we hold and how we hold them. There's a, one of the classic examples in the, the scriptures of misperceiving something as talks about walking along a path and you, you see what you think is a snake and you freak out because there's a dangerous snake there and only to find out that it's a, a piece of rope. It's not, it's not a snake at all. It's, um, there's lots of such views that we hold on to because we're holding too tightly or we're just not careful enough to be inquiring. And so once again, this path of spiritual inquiry really requires that we look very closely at the views that we hold. And not just how the views we hold affect us, but also how the views we hold affect other beings. I can remember how when my parents came to visit us and were staying at Chithurst Monastery and my mother was staying with the nuns and, and she was having a conversation there with one of the sisters and, and she was uh, explaining how how the Lord had given us these cows that were in the field to eat and was quite sure that this was, this was so and that uh, the story, this view, that animals don't have souls, it's all right to inflict excruciating pain on these animals because they don't have souls, they're not like us human beings. Look at what that view does to living beings. Or the view, for instance, that uh, there's no order in the universe, it's all just chaos. Uh, all morality is relative, which is a view that sometimes people hold. And how does that, what effect does that have? Uh, or the contrasting view that there's, there's somebody looking after us, there's some external agent who's in charge and is taking care of everything, including us. How does that affect us if we hold to such a view? And how does it affect our relationships to other people who don't hold the same view as we do? Or the view that, for instance, with regards to power, like some people have the view that all power corrupts. All power corrupts. And when I hear that, I think, well, 
if there's no power, how are you going to make a cup of tea? I mean, if the power is out, you can't make a cup of tea. The power is not the problem. It's how we relate to power that's the problem. And if you stick a screwdriver in an electric socket, and then, well, well you, you get a shock enough to kill you. And that, but that's not the problem with the power. That's not the problem with the electricity. That's the problem with how we relate. That's an unintelligent relationship to power. I think of power as like the capacity to effect change. And that capacity in itself, that's, that doesn't have to be corrupting or abusive. However, if there's not a wise relationship to power, then yes, it's true. It can corrupt. It can cause suffering. Yet where does the responsibility lie? Where is the source of suffering? The source of suffering is not in the power. The source of suffering is in the view. Like, like parents have got power, they've got authority over their children. And if they don't exercise that influence kindly, carefully, then it can cause a lot of hurt and a lot of damage. Or a leader or a boss in a business might have authority over the employees or a teacher can have power over his or her students. If there's a false perception of that power, if there's an uninspected relationship with that power, then yes, it can be dangerous. However, the power in itself is not the problem. So we need to look at the views that we hold and also how we hold them. If even the Buddha's right view, if we hold it too tightly, we can create problems out of it. The Buddha's teaching on, on right view, Sammaditi, which is to a large degree that can be summed up by the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Again, like we were chanting in the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta this evening. These teachings were encouraged to study because this is what gives us or takes us in the right direction in our investigations. We're interested in being free from suffering. We're interested in true, genuine happiness. And yet, if we don't study in the right way, if we don't pay attention in the right way, in the right place, then we can be spending a lot of energy that's not productive. And I remember the story of the Buddha with a group of monks in the forest that most of you be aware of. The Buddha picked up a handful of leaves from the floor of the forest and said, which is greater, uh, <clears throat> the number of leaves on the trees in this forest or the leaves in my hand? And of course, the, the bhikkhus said, the, the leaves on all the trees in the forest obviously are much greater than the leaves that you hold in your hand. And the Buddha said, so true, so too it are the truths that I've realized. However, what I've taught is what's relevant. What the Buddha taught was the right view or the Four Noble Truths. Learning to investigate in the right place at the right time. See, what is it that obstructs happiness? What is it that gives rise to wrong view, that blames external conditions, that blames that rope for our freaking out? That piece of rope lying there wasn't a problem at all. It wasn't a snake at all. Or if you have great faith in, in, in a view about an external authority taking care of everything and then your two-year-old child 
dies in a, in a tragic way and your faith is shattered. Or a global pandemic comes along and your business is ruined and your relationships suffer. And see, where's the compassionate authority now? And so the views that we hold can be shattered. They don't provide us with real security. Why is it that we settle for some of these views, like at the moment, and most of us are aware of the, the degree of the increase in conspiracy theories that are floating around. Why do human beings settle for false views, not seeing the false as false and the true as true, and head, heading for a happy destination, but you know, believing in that which is false, not taking the time to inspect the view and how we relate to it. You know, well, one reason is because life is really complex and it's really hard work. It's really hard work to investigate whether a view is accurate and our relationship to the view, whether it's suitable or not. It takes a lot of effort. It's actually easier to settle for overly simple explanations about life. It's just simpler, that's all. And we can grab at a view that then appears to answer our questions and relieve us from our anxieties and then we feel better. And if we're not really careful, we can settle for that until that view is threatened and challenged and then we find that it was lacking. So the Buddha wanted us to keep looking, to go deeper, to inspect the views that we hold on to and to see whether we're compensating for something deeper, something inner, holding on to fixed views in an uninspected way out of compensation for an uninspected inner feeling. So this is where we're encouraged to commit to the spiritual disciplines. And yes, it's hard work. Getting up possibly earlier than we want to, it takes effort. Making a commitment. Sticking by our commitments takes effort. It's difficult. Sitting still when we want to just move. It takes effort. It's difficult. Restraining our speech when we want to say something unkind or something cynical or disrespectful, if that's the habit that we have. It's difficult. It takes effort. However, this effort, this right effort, if it's based on right view, that is an interest in seeing the real cause of suffering, that it's clinging, it's clinging that creates the suffering. Yes, life gives us pain, there's no question about that, and the pain in the body, the pain of being misunderstood in relationships, the pain of not knowing, the pain of the fear of uncertainty. However, where's the problem with the pain? The pain of Fear, for instance, if you, you go into a room 
it's crowded with people and nobody's got a mask on these days, it's appropriate to feel afraid. Absolutely appropriate. If you don't feel afraid, maybe there's something wrong with you. You should feel afraid and then get out of the room. Fear is a motivator. However, if we feel afraid and we cling to the fear, that's when we become overcome by fear. You know, like, with again, with that example of the rope. If we're not clinging to the fear, yes, there can be an impulse of fear, which just tells us, watch out, maybe there's a snake there, then you look more closely and say, oh, it's not a snake, it's a rope. No problem. The fear was actually informing us. Or aversion, similarly. If you see somebody behaving like a bully, being disrespectful, unkind, it's natural feel aversion. It's like somebody coming into the room wearing stinky socks. It's repulsive. Um, there's a sense of aversion for that. However, where does the problem come from? The problem comes when we cling to that aversion and then we can end up getting angry at the person who hasn't washed their socks or hating the person who's being a bully. And what happens when we hate the bully? Well then there's a good chance they'll actually feed on it because they're caught up in something very toxic if they know about it. Or even if they don't know about it, we hurt ourselves by hating somebody. So getting interested in what the Buddha was teaching as right view, which is it's clinging to experience that creates suffering. And thereby learning how to restrain the heedless habit of projecting blame outwards. Getting really interested. What is there beyond the way things merely appear on the surface? It's easy to, when you're on the ocean, it's easy to talk about what it's like on the surface. But do they know what's going on in the depths? A huge part of planet Earth is covered by the oceans and a massive amount of it is still totally unexplored. If you want to explore the depths of the ocean, then you have to learn how to dive, right? You can't just flap around on the surface. You've got to learn how to dive, and that's a particular skill. Well, likewise, this spiritual adventure is about diving into awareness. This is where the wrong views, the false views, are lurking in unawareness. And it's challenging. It's dark down there, and we're not used to it. And, but thankfully, there are others who have learned how to dive into the depths of awareness and discovered how to navigate that territory and have come back and, and showed us and talked to us about how to do that. And that's, again, why we have these spiritual teachings for which, of course, we feel enormously grateful. This is why we study the teachings. So we learn this is what we need to be careful about. This is where we need to go slow. This is where we can afford to go faster. This is where we need to make more effort. This is where we need to pull back and rest. Maybe come back up to the surface for a while and then go back deeper again. So just being fooled by the surface appearance of our world, the world we live in, the world of experience, is probably not going to reveal the truth of the false views that we're clinging to. So then we need to ex equip ourselves with these skills. And I've spoken before about, for instance, cultivating the vector of embodied aspiration. 
In other words, using ritual practice, like bowing, beginning every day bowing to the Buddha image, ending every day bowing to the Buddha image. This embodied expression of aspiration, the Buddha image for us symbolizes the potential for realizing perfect wisdom and perfect compassion, the potential for being truly, genuinely happy. That's symbolized for us by the Buddha image. And when we, when we lower ourselves, when we bow in front of that, our body is being trained. We're cultivating this vector, or to use a less fancy word, this habit, this skillful habit of aligning ourselves with that which we feel is most valuable, most important. There's all sorts of things in life that are somewhat important and somewhat valuable. For us, that which we feel is most important, most valuable, is honouring the possibility for awakening. And so we cultivate this. We can cultivate this. We don't do it because somebody else tells us to do it, but because we're interested in generating the strength, the strength that means that we can meet all those obstructions. All the obstructions of unreceived suffering that are stored away in the basement of unawareness. How do we find the strength to meet ourselves in those difficult places? How do we find the strength to sustain the effort when we find ourselves in those difficult places? Well, these traditional practices can be great support. Regularly bowing, regularly sitting meditation, sitting upright, alert, softening, broadening, listening, receiving, attending to this moment. Regularly. I like when I sit in the Dhamma Hall here in front of the Buddha image to look at the Buddha image upright, aligned. The Buddha was perfectly, completely aligned with reality. I have faith in that. I have confidence in that. So looking at the Buddha image and just feeding in that suggestion, aligning myself with the Buddha, sitting in front of the Buddha, aligning myself with the Buddha, using these traditional practices not for some superstitious, magical reason that's going to absolve us and excuse us from learning to make the effort to meet ourselves in our unawareness. No, quite the opposite. There's a way of cultivating the strength so that we are able to meet ourselves. We are able to be honest with ourselves at the times when we're tempted to turn away. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Han Dhamma Yang Dhamma